two children. David, I've always looked forward to hearing you encourage us with the Word of God. So, David, come on up here. Especially after I set you up with such a great joke. Boy, that was a good story. Glad to be here tonight. Can you all hear me okay? Okay. I, uh, every once in a while at Memorial, I start uh, speaking. I want to move over here to the side. I start speaking and realize after about five minutes the microphone hasn't been on, so I just start all over again. They tell me, please don't start over again because no one told you the microphone was off because we didn't want to hear you in the first place. <laughs> but it is good to be here tonight. I have been here several times. I love to come to MacArthur Park. It is very similar to Memorial in Houston in so many ways. And people who have moved from San Antonio, several of them have ended up at Memorial over the years, and they always have good stories, and they always want me to say hello to folks. Tonight, I didn't tell anyone I was coming, I don't think, or I would have had people to tell you specifically hello from. However, I told my wife, obviously, I was coming tonight, and she couldn't come because lots of things going on, and she remembered MacArthur Park right away, and she said, please do not eat too many cookies. So... Uh, <laughs> I have the opportunity to speak in a lot of churches in the summer and summer series, and this is the only one I know that has the cookies at the back. So you're doing a great job, Doug, with this. this is, you have definitely caught my wife's attention, and that's good. Tonight I've been asked to talk about the cost, and obviously we've already heard a little bit, of, at least about the cost of a tuxedo. But I think about when I was a little boy, and I was, I was born in 1967. That'll tell you how old I am, and somewhere along the way, and about 1975 or so, a friend of mine at school wanted to sell me a football. And the football said, Buffalo Bill Super Bowl champions. And I wanted that ball so badly I couldn't stand it. He told me he would sell it to me for $25. And I mean, I saved and I saved and I saved money and I got up to about $8. And he still wouldn't, he wouldn't sell it to me. And I begged and I begged my dad for money and my dad kept saying, it's too expensive. No, no, it's not. It's I said, I, I want it, please. I can still remember the conversation we had in the car with me wanting with my hands right here next to my dad's neck. He didn't know that, or I would have not be here today if he knew it. I wanted it so badly. And then my dad said, you need to look up in, in the almanac who, who all has won the Super Bowl. See, he knew all along. The Buffalo Bills had never won the Super Bowl, and they still haven't. The cost was really high for something that was a fake. But, oh, I wanted it. We have to decide in our lives what is it that is important and what is it that's not important. What is it that is worth the cost of what we're buying? And what is it that we just need to let it go? Tonight, you know from the passage of Scripture, and obviously because we have gathered at church, you know that we're talking about the cost of being a Christian, the cost of following Jesus and what that means. So tonight, look in Luke chapter 14 and verses 25 through 27 going right along with that really interesting passage we had for a scripture reading. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, being Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his, fa his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple disciple. I don't think Jesus could have said it any stronger than that. You know, I, I try to be as politically correct as I can with folks because I don't want to get in an argument over words. But it seems like that Jesus was not always politically correct. 
And when it comes to standing up for our faith in Jesus, we want to do it in a way that is kind, in a way that is helpful, but we cannot be politically correct when it comes to our faith. We have to say, I believe in Jesus, and I am his disciple. And what Jesus is calling us to in this passage is to say, I am a disciple of Jesus. Come what may. If it means problems, I still follow Jesus. If it means even losing my life, I am still a Jesus follower. So he says this word, hate. And what in the world could hate mean? This is one of the passages that is sometimes used by people who don't want to be Christians or people who want to take a stab at Christianity. This is a passage they use. I remember back, oh, we've had three or four different seminars in the memorial congregation about Islam. Maybe you've had some here. Everett Hufford from from the Harding Graduate School of Theology came and did one of those. He grew up in the Middle East much of his life. Spent a lot of time back and forth from there. And I remember one passage he talked about was how we sometimes quote the, the Quran that says, you know, to kill the infidel. He says the passage they quote back at us is the one that we read in the scripture reading, the one about, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And said, and then they sometimes see, see us that way and think that, that, that that's who we're being. This is one of those passages as well. One of those where Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother and children and, and wife or husband, Unless you hate them and even hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. What does he mean by that? Obviously, what he's talking here in is a hyperbole. You remember that big word from English? He's making an extreme there. But what he is saying is, love everyone, but we love Jesus more than everyone else. We love Jesus above all else. You say, well, how do you know Jesus wants us to love? Because you remember the two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, might. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. So we know that somehow this, there's not a correl- that there has to be a correlation there. Obviously, we love people, but we love Jesus more than we love people. I have two daughters. One just graduated from high school. One just graduated from college. But when they were younger, I would put them to bed at night. That was kind of my time. I would take them to to bed, and we'd go through all these different things. I would actually sing to my daughters. I don't sing well, but I would sing, and I would rock my feet until I could get out of the room like this, all the way out. But one of the things I would do with them often is I would say, Who loves you? They'd say, Mom. Who else loves you? Dad. Who else loves you? Grandma. Who else loves you? Granny. Who else loves you? Granddad. And we'd go through all these different names. Then I would say, but who loves you the most? And they would say, God. I'd say, that's right. And I would say, and now, tell me, who do you love? And they'd say, Mom, Dad. They'd go through it all. And I'd say, but who do you love the most? And they would say, God. Well, I understand they were little kids, two, three, four, five, six years old. And they didn't completely understand that. But what I was doing at the time, trying to do, was teach my daughters that if their dad goes crazy and goes way off the track and loses his faith, I do not want them to follow me off the track as well. I want them to stay with God even if I lose my my mind. 
I want them to love God above everything else. I want them to love God more than they love me. I want them to love God more than they love their mother or, or whoever it is that God is first. Because that's what this passage is teaching. That unless you hate, he's meaning, unless, you, unless God is in first place, that none of this has importance. All relationships are through Christ, or there should be no relationship at all. And so you say, well, I understand that. And with my husband or wife, whenever we got married, maybe you went through premarital counseling with a preacher or a Christian counselor. Maybe you had it in a church building. Maybe you said scripture. You come to church. You understand that as some kind of Christian relationship. You understand it with your kids. You bring them to Bible class. You read them stories. You pray together. You understand that. But do you understand that with the people who you work with in your office where you don't necessarily talk about God or say at the copy machine, let us pray and maybe this thing will work. You don't do that with them, but somehow that relationship is to somehow be tied to God. You say, well, why? Because you remember what Jesus said when Jesus said to work slaves, work for your master as if you are working for the Lord? that our relationships at work also are tied to our relationship with God. Everything we do, if you have a friendship that does not somehow have a tie to Jesus, that somehow you are not trying to bring Jesus into that relationship, drop it tonight. If you are in any type of relationship that Jesus is not a part of, that is what I would call an unhealthy relationship. Now, I understand you may say, well, I want to bring Christ in it. That's what I mean, bring Christ in. But if you are not bringing him in, that is not a relationship that Jesus is blessing. So he's saying all relationships are through Christ or there's no relationship at all. And he says this phrase, and we've said it so many times, we've nearly, we've nearly gotten tired of it about carrying your cross. You remember he says, carry your cross daily. I wonder, how does it feel to carry a cross? Have you ever thought about that? How does it feel to carry a cross? You know, there's lots of talk about what kind of cross did Jesus carry? Did he carry the whole cross? Or sometimes we say, well, he probably just carried the cross beam. And from what I understand, that's probably true because of the weight of what a cross would, would, would what the weight that a cross would be as if that made it a lot easier. Imagine what it's like to carry a cross. Now, I've had an opportunity a couple of times to see these people that, that take a cross and they put wheels on the end and then they, they walk across the country and that's a noble thing to do. Makes us think about Jesus and if they want to do that, that's great. But the Bible does not say, roll your cross. It says, carry your cross. Carry your cross. And what would that feel like? Obviously, it would be very heavy, wouldn't it? To carry a cross. Can you imagine the weight of that all the time with you, everywhere you go? You know, I notice on Sundays, I often hold my Bible in my hand, and when I do, by the end of the service, showing you that I'm getting old, my shoulder kind of hurts. So I kind of move back and forth on my, on my arm, which hand I have it in because I don't know if it's arthritis or what, or if maybe I've just put way too many papers in this Bible, and it now weighs about 35 pounds. It'd be heavy. 
to hold a cross. And you know, I think even more than the weight of the cross, wouldn't it be awkward to be carrying that? Have you ever used that phrase, oh, it's not heavy, it's just awkward? It's not heavy, it's just hard to pick up, I can't get a handle. Crosses don't have handles. It is heavy, and it is awkward everywhere you go. Carrying this cross with you on your shoulder, on this shoulder for a while, moving it over to the other shoulder for a while, maybe putting it up where you can put both arms on it for a while, maybe stopping and resting and picking it up again. Everywhere you go, you have this cross, and it's so heavy and awkward and painful. Because, you know, with the cross Jesus was on or anyone else that was executed in the first century, they never sanded down the cross. They kept the splinters in the cross. When I was a little boy, one time I was playing outside and I decided to try to climb a telephone pole. That is a bad idea. I learned a lot of things the hard way. I can still remember the the splinter that was sticking out of my shirt and sticking into my body. I have a little tiny scar there. It reminds me when I was, was not nearly as smart as I am today. I don't climb telephone poles. But I remember digging and digging and digging, trying to get that out because I didn't want my mother to know what I had done. And I was scared to death, and she she never knew. She passed away before she ever had to hear this sermon to know about this. It hurts to have splinters, doesn't it? You've had them in your hands, haven't you? You went to pick up something, and there the splinters went in. Maybe they'd go in under the fingernail. All those hurt, don't they? Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple unless you carry your cross daily. And so here he is with this heavy, awkward, painful, humiliating cross. And this isn't just for Jesus to carry, it's for us to carry. The interesting thing about when Jesus said this, when we read it, we're reading it after it all happened, we immediately think of the cross that Jesus was on. We immediately think, well, Jesus is telling us to do what he did. When he said this story, he had not died yet, obviously. They had no idea that he was going to die on a cross. So could anything sound stranger? This was considered the most humiliating way, one of the most common and one of the most humiliating ways for a person to die. It would be equivalent, I guess, in some ways to someone saying, unless you sit in your electric chair daily, you cannot be my disciple. You would say, what are you talking about? You people in Houston are crazy. Why would you say to do that? That is the equivalent, except even more because a cross in some ways is more humiliating than an electric chair. He says, unless you carry it every day, you cannot be my disciple. And so you say, okay, well, I'm not, obviously it's not about a big piece of wood. It's not about carrying this thing around in my little car. You know, what is this? How is it that, what does it mean to carry a cross? I think the best way maybe I know to put it is it means losing my ego. I lose my ego. I don't know if you know this. Preachers have egos. Sometimes they're very proud of who they are. Sometimes whenever I get that that call, and they say, uh, David, I have just been studying, studying Zephaniah, and I was wondering if you could help me with this. I'm going, oh no, I'm about to look really dumb. 
because I don't know that much about Zephaniah. I've got to read really fast. I was in a restaurant one day studying in, in uh, Houston, and this man from Memorial came up to me, saw me in there. Hey, David, I saw you over here, and I've been wondering about the man of lawlessness. Could you tell me about that for a few minutes? And I was going, oh, uh, I'm on again. I'm on. I think I just turned it off. So I got tired of listening to myself. I think I just accidentally turned it off. Sometimes husbands are prideful. Sometimes wives are prideful. Parents are prideful toward their children. One of the things that that all the research says these days, and boy would I agree with that one of the things that is turning younger folks off from Christianity is what they see as a lack of authenticity. What Jesus was calling us to was authenticity, to be real. He says, lose the ego and follow me. It is not about you, it is about me, is what Jesus is saying. And Luke chapter 14 and verses 17 through 20 says... Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame and take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Do you see what he's saying there? He says, quit thinking that you are the one in charge. Quit thinking that you're the, the important one. Start understanding that there may be people that are more important than you are. There's an old story, I, I assume it's true, about, about George Washington Carver. You remember George Washington Carver, all the work he did with peanuts? We give him credit for peanut butter. I don't know if he really invented it or not, but, but, but let's say he did. And he was an African-American in a time when there were very few African-American scientists that had the, that had the opportunities that he had had. And according to the story, he was at a hotel where he was going to be honored one night. And when he got to the hotel, the scientists started coming in. Obviously, this was pre-internet, pre-television. And when he was there at the desk checking in, a white scientist came in, saw George Washington Carver standing there, who at that point was an older man, and he said, boy, take my bags to my room. And he said, yes, sir. And he picked up his bags and he carried them to the room and the man said, you just did what you're supposed to do, that doesn't deserve a tip. And closed the door. And boy, was that scientist shocked that night when his bellhop was the, was the prime honoree of the banquet. It's that idea of humbling ourselves and sometimes when we humble ourselves, We disgrace those who need to be disgraced, maybe. 
It's about being humble. I can remember being at a gathering about 20 years ago when the president of a Christian university came in and most of the chairs were, all the chairs were taken, and I can remember seeing him sit down on the floor. And I thought, no one knows who he is because they wouldn't have him sit over there. The next day, I remember when he stood up to speak and he never said a thing about it. But I never forgot that. And sometimes whenever there would be flames thrown his way, I would always say, let me tell you what this humble man did one time. I saw it with my own eyes. There is something about showing humility that is powerful, and it's exactly what Jesus called us to. Then in Luke 14, verse 21, the second part of the verse, Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind. Those who are too, who are too busy for Jesus will have no place with Jesus. Those who are too prideful for the banquet with Jesus will have no place with Jesus. Those who realize they need Jesus will be with Jesus. Sometimes I'm afraid that our, our money and our stuff and our citizenship and our pride that comes from all those things will get in the way of us knowing Jesus. And then over in Luke 15, which is the next chapter over, you don't need to look there necessarily. It's an interesting three passages that are there. You remember there's the passage about the lost sheep, and there's the lost coin, and then there's the lost son. You remember the prodigal son. They're all there in Luke chapter 15. Now, you understand the, the passage of the lost coin. The woman loses the coin. A coin is an inanimate object. And so the coin, it's not the coin's fault that it's lost. It's just lost. It's just what happens. Slides under the bed or whatever, rolls under the bed. But you have that sheep. And that sheep somehow decides to just wander off on its own. You know, you don't know why the sheep wanders off. Maybe it was just eating that green grass and just kept going and kept going and kept going until it was lost, just, just completely lost where it was. Maybe the sheep was upset with the rest of the sheep. Maybe it was upset with the shepherd. I don't like it that the shepherd tells us to go over to the left. I want to go to the right. I know there have to be some dandelions over there that I could eat, get a little flavor in this grass. The shepherd has to go out and find that sheep. The shepherd has to leave part of them and then go and find it. It takes time and work to do all of that. And then you have that story of the prodigal son, as we usually call it. I love what one scholar, Kenneth Bailey, talks about. He talks about the, it's the story of the, lost, the, lo, the son lost in the world and the son lost in the house. Because you remember there are two sons there. And so you have the son who comes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want to I, I take my inheritance. Give it to me right now and I'm going to go away and I'm going to use it. And you remember that he squanders it all and finally this Jewish boy is taking care of pigs and starts thinking he might even enjoy eating what the pigs eat. It makes no sense he's out there. It shows how far he's gone. And you remember that finally he sets up a speech and decides to go home and tell his father. But before his father can ever, ever, he can ever tell the story to his father, his father's already wrapped his arms around him, loves him, brings him into the house. He puts a robe on him, a ring on his feet, a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, brings him into the house, throws a party for him. And then you remember there's the brother, the story of the other brother who may be us, seems like. Why in the world are we throwing a party for a sinful brother who goes and squanders everything? Why would we do that? 
I was preaching this one time three or four years ago, and as I prepared for that sermon, it was the first time that it ever hit me that the father had to leave his own party he was having for his son to go outside to deal with someone else. Have you ever been at a party that you had to go deal with an issue because someone was upset? If you have a child, for sure there was someone crying over the cake, right? So you know what that was like. But you might have done that with an adult. So he says here, in Luke 15, the point is, I care for those who have hurt me and caused me extra work. I was reading a book not long ago by a preacher who's been in ministry for 50 years. He said, I realized one day, and it helped all of my ministry, that I spend 95% of my time on the 5% of the issue, uh, which are issues. I spend 95% on the 5%. And he said, and it gets me down. Because that's what I'm thinking about all the time are the problems rather than all the good things. Do you know what it's like with people that you have invested your time and your tears and your hugs and your money with? And they say, what have you done for me lately? You have, had, you have sat there and held their hands and you have prayed with them. You have taken food to their house. You have cared for them and you've done all this for them. And they say, I don't need you because you don't help me enough. And do you know what Jesus says? You have a heart for those who hurt us and those who take extra time. If you are a minister or an elder, you understand what I'm talking about. If you are a Christian who, who lives out your faith, you also know what I'm talking about because you have gone through those experiences before. But we humble ourselves and love people and try to give them what they need and what will bring them to a better place. We don't give up on them. This is part of this of letting go our ego. Back to Luke chapter 14, verses 27 through 33. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Oh, or what king goes out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." If we are going to follow Jesus, we have to count the cost. If Jesus is truly going to be Lord of our lives, we have to count the cost. This, when, we, when we're baptized into Christ, and you know how wonderful it is, and how wonderful it is when our kids are baptized into Christ, but do not misunderstand, that is not some kind of cute little ceremony that they're going through. It is people being snatched from Satan's hands. It is, it is real, it is significant, and it's not just some little rite of passage. It is us giving our life through faith to Jesus. 
of saying, I will follow Jesus forever, whenever, however. It doesn't matter. Jesus is Lord. That is who I follow now. That is my Lord. And whatever age that's decided, that is the decision that is to be made for a lifetime. So what are the implications? One is that I give up my will. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but your will be done. It is not not about what are David's preferences. It is about what are Jesus' preferences. When it comes to matters of opinion, they are just matters of opinion, and we can talk all day long. And we can decide to do it your way, we can decide to do it my way. But when it is a matter of Scripture, it is Jesus' way every time. Not my way, not my will, but his will. Jesus has to be first over my career and over my marriage and over my family and even my social life. You know, sometimes we don't put Jesus over these things. You know what people say? Well, I want to be a Christian but at work, but you know what my job is. If I am not somehow finding a way to display my faith through what I am doing in my job, even in a bad economy, what Jesus would say is, find another job. Now, that doesn't mean maybe you want to talk to, to one of the ministers later, elders, someone, and say, okay, how can I show Christ in this job? Maybe you need to do that before you quit. But if I am not showing Christ in what I do for a living, then I am not being a disciple of Christ. I am being a fake. If Christ is not seen in my marriage, I am being a fake. If Christ is not being seen in the way that I take care of my children, I'm just being a fake. How many folks have you known stories about that they were here every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? I mean, they even, they even volunteered for the nursery. I mean, they do everything. But what happened when, these, when they walked out of this door and got into their car was a completely different life. Jesus has said, I want all of you. It is not part of you, it is all of you. I want the whole thing. I want you to count the cost because the costs are serious. Nothing is ahead of Jesus. Now I've gotten really serious lately about this whole idea about counting the cost because things are happening. I don't really understand in the world right now. I don't really know where, what box to put things in. And, and I've shared some of these stories the last couple of times I've spoken because I'm, they're rolling around in my head all the time. And they're stories I can't talk about publicly in, in Houston because, because of our audience. You'll understand why in just a minute. I'm not hiding anything from them. I just can't talk about it there. Because of however the world is working, we're not having as the number of baptisms maybe we had 10, 20 years ago. But wow, is it incredible when people are coming to Christ. It doesn't happen just in one Bible study like it used to. I mean, we have no Ethiopian eunuch saying, here is water, what hindereth me from being baptized? That is not happening. It's happening over a long period of time. It's like the woman who came to us because she met someone she knew, met one of our members. 
the member is an attorney who was working for someone. The attorney somehow knew this Syrian man who knew this Saudi Arabian woman and brought this Saudi Arabian woman to us. The Syrian man is a Christian. He's not, not uh, from churches of Christ. I don't even know where he is. He just brought her. And he said, this woman needs a home. And I heard this is a good place. She needs somebody to tell her about Jesus. And so people started talking to her about Jesus. She has a daughter, and her daughter got a Bible the first day, a kid children's Bible the first day she came to, to, to church. And that afternoon, the, the woman was so friendly and so happy. And that day, she called her mother back in Saudi Arabia, and they just talked about things. And later on in the conversation, the grandmother in Saudi Arabia said, let me talk to the granddaughter. And the granddaughter said, what are you doing? She said, I'm reading my new Bible. She said, you have a Bible? Yes, I'm reading my new Bible. She said, put your mother back on the phone. The mother said, so your daughter has a Bible? Yes, she does. I'm sending your brother to slit your throat. She said, I will not go backwards. She continued to study, and eventually she was baptized into Christ. And she's there all the time. Her husband's not with her. She's by herself with her daughter. She is living her faith to the point that I'm embarrassed about the cost that I count. There's another woman last year. We're, we're about to start VBS this week. Last year, we have a little adult class at VBS, and I teach that class. Last year, this woman was brought to me at VBS. And uh, I'd heard about her, another Muslim woman. I'd heard stories about her, but I'd never seen her. She'd come on Wednesday nights. What had happened was she came to our building. To use, or she got a, a, a phone call and she knew that, uh, on her cell phone, and she knew that, that um, she needed to stop somewhere and, and park because this was going to take a long time on the call. She didn't want to drive and, and uh, talk on the phone. It was about 6.30 on a Wednesday night that she came into the parking lot. All at once, cars started coming in, and she was completely surrounded with cars. She thought, what in the world is going on? And she said, I just realized it was a church. And she said, I sat there in the car, and she said, I don't know why, but I got out of the car and I walked in. And there were two women that were there at the door whose husbands don't come with them, and they, they're kind of in charge of a ladies' class we have, a small group study. And they invited her into the class, and she started, started enjoying what she was hearing, and she said, I want to come back. And she started, started this faith walk started in her of believing in Jesus and wanting to know more. And so at VBS, they brought her to me, and we talked and studied some. And she said, oh, I need help. I need someone who speaks Farsi. I said, I know someone who does this man named Wassam that maybe some of you know who's a, who is a, uh, uh, from Iraq, but he is a missionary in Dearborn, Michigan to, to Muslims. And so I talked to Wassam on the phone. I said, can you speak Farsi? Because I know it's not your first language. He said, I do. I'll help her. They went back and forth, back and forth for days. I would study the little bit I could, but they, he was really the one doing the studying with her. One day she walks into my office. She says, David, I'm ready to be baptized. I said, have you counted the cost? She said, what do you mean? I said, what is this going to mean with your husband? 
What's this going to mean in your community of folks, Iranian community? She said, I understand. I'm not ready. She walked out. About two weeks later, she came back in my office. I'm ready to be baptized. I said, have you counted the cost? You really need to count the cost. You really need to. And what I realized as I was talking to her was, I was counting the cost because I was going to baptize her. I didn't know what the repercussion would be for that. I said, have you counted the cost? She says, no, I really haven't. I'm going home again. I have never done this to someone. Part of it was my own fear, but I also wanted her to realize what was going on. She came back a week later. She said, baptize me now. I said, I'll do it. I get up, we go in, then nobody else. She said, I'm going to tell people, but I can't tell people right now. It needs to come over time. I said, I'll baptize you. I baptize her. She stayed in the water for about five minutes before she got out. She just stayed there. Afterwards, she said, this is the greatest feeling I've ever had in my life. I'm in Christ. I love Jesus. She said, I'll tell my husband eventually. She told her husband, I get get an email. My husband wants to talk to you tonight. I said, not tonight. (laughs) Why not tonight? I said, I'll talk to you, talk to him tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock at a restaurant. (laughs) And we met, and she came in behind him with her head down. I'd gotten a new phone that day, and I didn't have it all set up. So I didn't know I was getting email from her before. And he said, and I read a book that night about how to get ready for the situation. He said, my wife is denouncing her faith in Jesus, renouncing her faith. I said, I don't think that's, I, I said, why are you telling me that? Why isn't she telling me that? He said, she's, she's renouncing right now. We're denouncing that she believes that. I said, I think it's her decision to make, not yours. We went back and forth in a friendly way. I never stopped smiling. And he said, well, she is, it's done. And they got up and they walked out. When I got back to my house and got to regular email, there was a message from her. I had one before, and I had one from her right afterwards. It said, no matter what he says, I will never leave Jesus. And so now, she can't come as often as we'd like her to come. I said, you don't have to be here. We understand. She said, no, David, you don't understand. She said, I have to be there as long as I can be there because I have to hear people singing about Jesus and I have to see the faces of people who believe in Christ. This is Hebrews 10.25 about not forsaking the assembly, you know, the old verse that we hit people with. This is her telling me this, and she doesn't even know that verse is there. She said, I have to see those people. So what she does is her grocery shopping on Sunday mornings across the street. The day of the Orlando shootings, I caught her right afterwards. Usually she's with us about 20 or 30 minutes of the worship service in and out. I caught her at the back. I said, how are you doing? She said, it's not good. I said, what do you mean? She held up her phone. She said, he's called me 18 times since I've been here. After this encounter I had with her, the first one, he took her back to her home country so that she would be able to get this out of her system. And I prayed for her like I've never prayed for anybody. 
They left on a Thursday, on the Wednesday before they left. At church, she said, I have a gift for you. And it was a cross. Probably she bought it at Hobby Lobby or somewhere. And she said, I want you to have this cross. And it's a little one you can stand up in a house. We put it in our living room. And whenever my daughters saw it, they both said, that doesn't go with our decor. I said, it doesn't really with everything else in here. But that's the most precious thing we have in this room. A cross given to me by a woman who put her faith in Jesus and the next day was going back to where they were going to try to take that out of her. And when she walked through the door of the church building the first time after coming back, I hit the ceiling. That's called counting the cost and saying Jesus is first. So what if I drop my cross? You see, that's where most of us are. I have this problem. I have the dropsies. I drop things. Sometimes I drop my cross. Sometimes I take my eyes off Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing. Thank God for grace. Because all have sinned, and all sin, and fall short of the glory of God. But God has this incredible gift he gives us called grace, that he lets us come back. And if you're in one of those places where you're in sin and you know it and you're you're not being who you're supposed to be at work or in your family or even here at church, here's the beautiful thing. You can recommit and pick it up again. He doesn't tell us how many times we can pick up our cross again. You just keep going back and picking it up again. Count the cost, but realize the only thing that is eternal is Jesus and life with Jesus. Put everything in Christ. Thanks.